So I was reading this week, I came across a story that I think is an interesting beginning to our text this morning. It's about a minister, and a minister that had three sons, and as they went through the course of their, their week, suddenly this dog appeared on their doorstep. And if that isn't bad enough, no, sorry for all the dog lovers out there. <laughs> No, this dog came on the doorstep and, and just sort of wormed its way into the family. You know how that works out? And, and so they, they became attached to it, and it was a, a cute little dog. They had no idea where it came from. And a couple months later, they, they came across a, a um, posting for a missing dog. And the description of this dog was exactly the dog that had come to their house. And one of the ways that they knew as part of the description were that it had these three white hairs that went through the tail. And so it was, other than that, a dark-haired dog. And so the person came over. But before they came over, the dad, the, the minister, in front of his boys, they carefully took the tail and, and, and they picked out the three white hairs. <laughs> wow. No, no, that's not the awe part yet. It's coming up. <laughs> They, they picked out the three white hairs, and the person came, and, and it was obvious the dog recognized them, and the person was just about to leave with the dog, and the dad said, well, wait a minute. You said it had three white hairs in the tail. And they, they, the man looked at the tail and says, no, it doesn't. I guess it's not my dog. And he ended up leaving without the dog. And the minister later said this. He said, that day we kept the dog but I lost my three boys to Christ, or for Christ. Because he lost integrity. He lost passing on a vision, a purpose of what God is doing in his life, passing on a faith, a trust in the faithfulness of God, because his boys saw that it wasn't a life of obedience. Hard story. As I read it, I'm thinking of my boys, and I'm thinking... As many of you dads are thinking, oh great, one mistake and they're lost forever. And praise God by His grace that's not true. And how we respond to our mistakes with our kids. Are we willing to apologize and confess and, and repent with our kids as part of that process? But that story made me think of legacy, which is a little bit of what we're talking about in Joshua 23 and 24 this week and next week. Because we've come to the end of the story. We've come to the end of the book. And we're at a point where now we fast forward 20, 25 years from where we've been up through chapter 22. And we've, we've been through the wars, haven't we, with Joshua? We've been through the conquest and we've seen him lead the people through the land and, and, and break the backbone of the Canaanite army. And then we saw him allot the lands and the tribes go out and then the two and a half tribes last week sent back to the other side of the Jordan. And now we fast forward 20, 25 years later and we get to the end of Joshua's life. And Joshua's thinking here, how do I pass on leadership, the mantle of leadership? How do I make sure this people that I've loved, that I've led, that I've, I've helped to follow God, how do I make sure that legacy continues? And I think of that story with the minister, someone that, that failed at that but as we look at Joshua, we see someone that succeeded at that. And so today we want to look at chapter 23, where by and large he's addressing the leaders of Israel. Then next week we'll look at chapter 24, where he's, he's addressing the people of Israel in a general assembly. And we want to look at how Joshua passes on the mantle of leadership today. How he passes on the vision of God's work next week to the people. Turn with me to, to Joshua chapter 23 and let's study God's Word together. Joshua chapter 23. As we study this, we're going to see some familiar themes. Joshua learned what it meant to follow God. He followed God and now he's saying what it means to follow God. And so this isn't anything new. But as we, as we study this, Keep in mind, he's passing this on. This is passing on a legacy. So we'll look at what he chooses to say and how he chooses to say it. His final words are something worth noticing. When we think of final words, we think of the words that are most important to that person. In General Douglas MacArthur's final address to Congress, right after he gave up his last command, 
He was the, the supreme commander of the Pacific region in World War II. He was um, a, a general, a commander in the Korean War. And he said this to Congress, an old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light to see that duty. Goodbye. That's all he said. Well, at the, end, at the very end. That was the, the phrase at the very end. And it, it was, it's significant because he was seeing, he, he's portraying that he did his duty that God gave him to do. And those were his final words. What he wanted to be remembered by. As we come to this text, we see Joshua's final words. The first of two final sermons. What does he want to be remembered by? What does he want to pass on? So let's start with verse 1 in chapter 23. And verses 1 and 2 really set the stage. It's the intro in your notes. I've said this is Joshua passes on the leadership baton with intentionality. With intentionality. Let's read it. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And then he'll go on to give his, his message to them. And we see several things out of this. Like, like I said, we, we see the, the setting here, the time frame, that this is at the end of his life. This is sometime later. We know from chapter 24 that he died at about 110 years old. And if we take Caleb's age, it looks as if this is 20, 25 years after the allotment of the land. And, and so this, there's been some time here. And what's interesting to me is even though there's been some time and everyone's gone to their own land and Joshua went to his own land and and with his family, Joshua is still choosing to pass on the leadership mantle. At this point, I might think I'm retired. I'm with my family. They're already going to figure it out. So just have fun. I'm off and, and you're good. But Joshua summoned all Israel its elders, its heads, its judges, its officers. This was intentionally bringing them back together. Why would he do that? He's intentionally caring for the people. Wanting the people to follow God. And so the way he's doing that is by building into the leaders that are there. Now, like I said, there's two messages here and and they both start with sort of the same group that's coming together. But it looks as if this message is primarily geared for the leadership because in chapter 24, we have phrases like, and he said to all the people, and, and it's, it's much more general in nature, whereas this one is much more pastoral in nature of, of a leadership group. All of Israel might have been there. Some commentators think it was the leaders representing all of Israel. Whatever it was, it was a trip. It was a journey, and Joshua said to all the leaders, you've got to come. Let's get together. Let's interrupt life for a minute, because this is important enough to address. And so he is intentionally leading the people. Not just letting things happen. And I'm reminded when I think of leadership, both in the home, in the church, leadership doesn't happen by accident. Leadership is always intentional. Dad's leadership in the home is being intentional with what we want to accomplish, with how we want to accomplish it, and, and intentionally making the time to do that. We don't accidentally pass on our faith to our kids. At least not well. We don't accidentally disciple others in the church. We don't accidentally raise up leaders. To do any of these things well, there must be intentionality. I also love the fact that Joshua here is close to 110. And he's still doing God's work. There is no retirement when it comes to God's work. When we retire from our our jobs here, our vocations, it just gives us more time to do God's work. And I love seeing some of our retired men and women who are are investing in the church and investing in God's church because they want to intentionally raise up a next generation of leaders. And so Joshua here brings everyone together because he's concerned for the nation he led. And he wants to make sure God's faithfulness is passed on to the next generation. So we jump into his actual sermon in verse 3. And in this we get his vision and he's casting vision. Joshua reminds them of what God has done and what he wants to do. Let's read those verses. 
And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan and the great sea to the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. I love how Joshua starts. He starts by, by drawing their focus back to God, by painting a picture of who God is, what He's done, and then painting a picture of what God is still continuing to do, what God wants to do. When I think of the work of God, especially in a church setting, but in a family setting as well, that's how we cast vision. We cast vision by pointing those under us back to God, what He has done and what He is doing. In verse 3, we're remembering what God has done. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. And He's reminding them of the conquest, of all the stories we've talked about, of all the ways God has been faithful. This is a moment of the rocks beside the Jordan River. And Joshua is coming to say, remember. Remember what God has done. Don't forget. And as we talked about that week, we talked about how so many times in Israel's history they forgot, and that term is used, they forgot the Lord God. It doesn't mean that they somehow put Him out of their memory, but they forgot what He had done, that relationship. They forgot their covenant, their commitment to Him. They ignored it. But here Joshua, as a brilliant leader, brings them back to that. We see a humble leader. He mentions what he's done, but it's in the context of what God has done. And so he's saying, God gave you this land. Yes, I allotted it. I I, I led you in it, but this is God's work. I'm just his humble servant. He's pointing people to someone greater than themselves. And that's what great leaders do. They point people back to God. But then in verses 4 and 5, That's not the end of it. He says there's still work to do. So remember what God has done, but there's still work to do. And catch a couple things out of those verses. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain. Catch that word remain in there? What does that mean? They're still there. 20-25 years later, there's still pockets of Canaanites. There's still pockets of people that were supposed to be wiped out. This is why I believe Joshua is concerned because he sees a compromise in the people starting. He sees the seeds of rebellion against God that maybe aren't rebellion now, but he knows the path where it's going to lead and that's going to come up in the rest of his, his, his message to his leaders. But right now, he's painting a vision. There's still work to do. There are tribes that still remain. We still have obedience to to fulfill to God. Along with all the nations I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea. So he says, the Lord will give you those that remain. Remember, He's already given to you so many. And then verse 5 again, there's still work to do. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And so he gives a vision that there's still work to do, but he gives the confidence of who does the work. He's casting vision here. He's saying, look at how great God is. Look at His faithfulness. Remember that. Now there's work to do, but be confident because God's the one that does it. Even at 110. He's instilling this in the younger leaders that this is how you lead. I read this and I'm thinking, I'll follow that. I'll follow that. You, you remind me of how great God is. You show me that we're following His work. And let's go. Let's take that hill. And that's what Joshua is doing here. It's interesting because he's giving the, the same vision that he got in chapter 1. Flip over to Joshua 1 for a moment and we'll flip here a couple times. Joshua 1 verses 1 through 5. And just, just see if this sounds familiar. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I am giving to them, 
to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you just as I promised Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. And in Joshua's commissioning from God, God cast vision. I am the one that fights for you. I'm the one that gives you the land. And Joshua here, 25, 30 years later, is saying the same thing. He's singing the same tune. And and what, what impresses me about Joshua chapter 23, one of the things about what he's saying at the end of his life is it's the same thing he said he, he believed at the beginning of his career. Think about that for a minute. Think about how things change over 20 years. Has your life changed from 20 years ago? Just a little bit, right? A little bit of transitions. And Joshua is still saying the same thing. That consistency is a testimony to his following of God. To his faithfulness to God. See, when someone can come to me and say, I've followed God for 30 years and He has never let me down, that means something. That period of time builds credibility. I think of Papa John Nelson, who's with our Lord and Savior now. And, and in, in all my conversations with him, I remember first talking to him um, 20, 25 years ago. And he was all about the grace of God and the love of God and, and showing that. What, those of you that know him, that just oozed out of his pores, right? And right up to the end when God took him home, he was about the grace of God and the love of God and serving God. He was consistent in his walk with God. And that was part of how he passed on his legacy. That was part of how he invested in me is I saw that consistency And there's a a proof in the pudding that that works. And not that it's about what what works, but that what he said is true. That's what I see in Joshua. We get to the end end of his life and he's saying the same thing. Because he's lived it. He has credibility. So at the beginning, God is with you. He will give you the land. At the end, God is with you. He will give you the land. So step up and serve Him. Joshua is reminding them of what God has done and what He wants them to do. That's the vision. Then the next section, verses 6-13, through 13, is the instruction that, that Joshua is giving. He outlines how to accomplish that vision. It's great to say, let's go, let's go take the hill for God. But without any instruction of how that might work out, it's empty. It's meaningless. And so Joshua here gives them what to do. Be obedient and sold out for God. It's pretty simple. But he's defining in these next six, seven, eight verses what to do and what not to do. He's also defining that there's conditions for God's help. And that's important that we come to Joshua and realize it, it can be so easy to claim and say, whatever I want, God is going to give me because He is faithful. It's hogwash. It's whatever God wants. If I come in line with His will and His purposes and obey Him, then He's with me. And in fact, we'll see as Joshua continues, he says the opposite as well. If you walk away from God, if you don't obey God, He is not with you. And there are consequences for that action. And so we want to be careful of just trying to get God to bless whatever we're doing. Don't we do that sometimes? I have these plans, God. I'm going to pray and you're going to do it. I've done that. Maybe I'm the only one in the room. And God challenges and, and, and He laughs. And He says, this is my plan. And so Joshua reminds his, his under-generals, if you will, or his leaders that are coming up that there's a way to accomplish that vision and it's obedience and being sold out for God. And we'll break this down just into six different points that are in your notes there, um, verse by verse. Start with verse 6. Joshua says, therefore, so he's given this vision, and then he goes, therefore, if we're going to accomplish this, be strong and to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, 
turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. So his first instruction is obey. Obey. I know that's not really profound. It's not flowery language. It's what's required of us. Obey. And we try so many other things to walk close to God and to somehow feel His presence. Obey. It's what God requires. You still have your finger in Joshua 1. We just read, Be strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand or the left. Let's read verses 6 on. In, in chapter 1, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. He's repeating what he was given when God com- commissioned him for this job. Just like we just talked about. It, it, it continues. So why would he repeat it? That's how he started his ministry. He said it. It's like the husband that won't tell his wife he loves her. He says, I, I told you when we got married and I'll let you know if it changes. No, you want some repetition there, right wives? Well, God, God is through Joshua repeating His instructions. He's repeating, you need to obey. And, and the standard for that obedience is God's Word. All that is written in the book of the law. And so the, 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 the logic here, and we're going to see this several times in this chapter, God is faithful. That's what, where Joshua was telling them and reminding them what God has done. So we should be faithful. God is faithful, so we should be faithful. And that's repeated over and over again until it's easy to get bored of it and bored of that concept. But God keeps repeating it. And we know from Israel's future beyond this point, we know from the the history we have that they didn't follow that. And they kept forgetting that. Do not veer to the right hand or to the left He's talking about a a commitment to full obedience without veering off. I had the opportunity to drive my my parents' car this week. They're not in the room, right? Uh Uh-oh, Mom's here. Hi, Mom. (laughs) And their car has this cool feature that if you veer off from your lane, it tells you. It it says something like, you're about to die. No, well... That, that was my interpretation. It says something like, you're out of your lane, and it beeps, and this little thing, this little picture comes up with the car going off. And you know what I was doing at that point. <laughs> this is really cool. Let's, let's do it again. <laughs> and, and sometimes it wouldn't say anything, and I'm like, it wants me to die. But um, it, it was interesting because it, it, it told us when we were veering off into the other lane. Don't we need something like that in our lives? We need God's Word to say this is the lane you're in and we have His instruction, do not veer to the right, do not veer to the left. How do we do that? And we've got to build things into our lives that help us stay on track. One of those things is a commitment to God's Word. If you never read God's Word, you don't know what lane you should be in. And and, and it has to be consistent. But beyond that, I think we need people in our lives that are willing to tell us like their car does, you're off track. You're about to die. You're about to head on someone or, or go off the road to the right. And so we need people that we have given direct permission to hold us accountable. Don't just say, I have Christian friends and so I'm good, but people that we have said, if I get off track, you tell me. And agree right now to tell me. It's that important. Joshua here is reminding them and trying to hold them to that. Saying, you want to do God's work? Stay in the right lane. Stay on track. Obey. Another part of this that I just want to mention that that applies to this whole, whole section. Obedience comes as a result or as a response to God's faithfulness. To His work. 
God is faithful. He works in our lives. And so we have then a responsibility to respond with obedience. We're responding to His grace and salvation. We see that in this passage. We see that over and over in Scripture. That we have a human responsibility because of what God has done in our lives. And I know we don't necessarily like to think of obedience as a responsibility and and we don't like someone telling us what to do. But God saved us. Because of His death on the cross, we have been brought from death to life and we have an eternity, a hope of a future with God. Wouldn't we want to follow Him? Wouldn't we want to obey Him? Stay on track, Joshua says. And that speaks to us today. He then goes on in verse 7, and we're going to see a pattern of he'll give a command, a two-part command, and then a motivation, and another command and a motivation. All sort of under the heading of obeying God. And in verse 7, he says, don't mix. Beware of drifting into worldliness. Let's read that together. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. And what he's saying is obedience must include separation from the world. We can't have one foot in the world and one foot in Christianity and call ourselves obedient. We are disobedient. And it's interesting, Joshua here has in mind this drift that he sees happening to the people. And if you even just read this verse... It's a sequence of events that get worse and worse. Because he knows that the the nation may not be tempted with just full-scale idolatry at first, but there's going to be a sequence of how Satan's going to get them there. And the first part of that sequence is that the nations are remaining there. They've disobeyed, and so they're starting to associate and live with and be okay with worldliness around them. And then they start being okay with the names. And mentioning their names here would be maybe even using the, the names of their gods for some incantations or, or for some contracts. The names of gods often in business dealings were used to seal a contract. And so if you have Canaanites you're living with and you need to do business with them, you now need to mention their name of their god as a way to seal the contract. And then Joshua says it goes on. Then, then you're swearing by them. Then you're assuming they have some sort of authority. And it goes on. Then you're serving them. And then you're bowing down to them in worship. And so Joshua here is very concerned for the people. And he's painting a picture of a slide into worldliness. A drift into worldliness. There's the slope of compromise. And it started with associating with them. We know from, from a couple verses down, intermarrying with them is part of that associating with them. Living life together. And you know how that works. They intermarry and then their wives look at them with their puppy dog eyes and, and, and suddenly there's idols in the house. It's hard, isn't it, guys? We went to McDonald's for lunch yesterday. I didn't want to go to McDonald's for lunch. But my daughter did. And she snuggled up against my side. And I don't know where she learned how to do this. Those of you with daughters, I I think it's just built in. And she looks at me and says, Daddy, can can we go to McDonald's for lunch? Because we're going out as a family. And so, so, okay. (laughs) We had a good time at McDonald's. You know, that's a compromise that's not sin. But God here has said, wipe out these people because your wives are going to do that to you. And you're going to compromise. And you're going to slide. That word do not mix means to not even come into, to not even become part of the affairs of. And village, this is a message we need to hear today, isn't it? The creep of worldliness is all around us. It's so easy to just start to be okay with what we see around us. Sometimes that starts with entertainment. And I know these are the popular ones to rail on, but it's because they are so powerful to draw us away from God eventually. But you think of entertainment choices in movies and TV, and the question that I ask myself sometimes is, if God is upset about what He's seeing, am I upset about what I'm seeing? 
And that's convicting. That's convicting because if I'm not upset about sin that's on that screen, then I don't have the heart of God for that. We can go into music, but more than that, I think friendships and people that we associate with. For those singles that are here, I have watched so many singles in 25 years of ministry that have compromised God's Word and compromised values for the sake of companionship and for the fear of loneliness. And I've got to tell you, I have almost never seen that work out well. God says don't even mix. Don't even mix. Let me read a couple verses to you. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The idea of being conformed to this world is being shaped and molded by the views, by the worldview that is around us. And the only way we won't be shaped and molded by that is if we are, are tuning our mind to the Spirit, letting God control our minds and, and, and transform our minds. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. We read part of this passage last week. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Paul is speaking here and he's writing to a church that has struggled with worldliness. And, and he's, he's saying this like, are you nuts? What partnership does righteousness have with sin, with lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? It makes no sense to him. What accord has Christ with Belial, a word that's used of Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Therefore, skipping to verse 17, therefore go out from their midst and separate and be separate for them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. First verse of the next chapter. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now what he's talking about, we know from Paul's writings that, that Paul desperately wanted the lost to know about Christ. And he went to the lost. And he did rub shoulders with them to share the gospel with them. But he's saying you're to be separate from what they're doing, from their actions, from their sin. I would go as far as to say there is no way that someone walking with God could ever have a best friend that isn't. Because the, the purpose of that friendship is different. The purpose of that friendship isn't to have a good time and to party or whatever. The purpose of that friendship is to share with them that they need Jesus Christ. Because quite frankly, if we don't share that with the, those we know that don't know Christ, then we don't care about them and we aren't their friends. Because we're willing to let them die. This section is the center point of Joshua's address to his leaders, to his people. And man, it hits home to me. It hits home in my life. It hits home as I, I think of my heart for this church, my heart for you. Don't mix. Be separate from the sin of this world. Sin should always bother us in whatever form we see it. Again, this doesn't mean we avoid non-believers, but we avoid the association with the sin, participation in that sin. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. That verse is enough, isn't it? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's cut and dry. It's straightforward. It's truth. We have to beware of creep. Beware of worldliness worming its way into our lives, into the fabric of our lives in any way. I was reading this week about the stories of, of Harvard and Yale. Two universities that ironically enough, were started as Christian universities. Strong Christian universities. Harvard in 1636, their, their purpose was to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. You will not see that on the campus now. In fact, their, their diploma read, Christo 
et ecclesia um, around Veritas. So Veritas and then Christo et ecclesia was around it, meaning truth for Christ in the church. It was only 80 years later, after the founding of Harvard, that a group of New England pastors really sensed Harvard had drifted away from God, and so they went to someone, Mr. Yale, who financed their efforts for a new college, Yale University. And, and their motto was not just Veritas or Truth like Harvard, but Lux at Veritas or Light and Truth. And they have now drifted away. A series of compromises. At their 350th anniversary of Harvard, one of the, the speakers bluntly stated, the bad news is the university has become godless. Let me read verse 7 again out of Joshua 23. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Be careful. Verse 8 goes on. That, that's the heart right there. But verse 8 goes on with a rather. And if you, if, you, if you read the first word, but, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. And Joshua doesn't just say, don't do this. He goes, but do this. And he says, cling to the Lord your God. And, and that word for cling, it's used in several places. One of the places it's used is in the process of soldering. Have any of you soldered things together and you melt the metal and, and it, it makes a bond that can't be broken? Well, I, I, physically you could break it if you have enough strength, but it makes a bond where it's one. You know, I, I think of putting the, the water pipes into my house and we soldered all the connections, which I guess isn't the way you do it anymore, but we did it that way then. And, and because it created a tight bond that even under pressure wouldn't leak and wouldn't let go. That's the word that's used here of, of what our relationship with God should be. A bond where we cling to Him and don't let Him go, but it also implies that He is with us. And He is clinging to us. Another place that this is used is in Genesis 2.24. When God is, is presenting Adam with His bride... And what an incredible moment. And he says, for this reason, you'll leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife or cling to your wife. Same word. Become one. Inseparable. And so it's not just about not mixing in the, with the world. It's about clinging to Jesus Christ with tenacious loyalty and extreme closeness. What a picture. We just sent a group of high schoolers off this morning to Wildwood. And Wildwood's motto was to crush the world's influence and replace it with Jesus Christ. That's these two verses. Crush the world's influence, but replace it with a relationship with God Almighty. And so the command, don't mix, but rather cling to God. And then he gives a motivation in verses 9 and 10. As, as great leaders do, this is what you should do. This is why you should do it. And in verses 9 and 10, For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as He promised you. And Joshua is coming back to the work of God. And he's saying, trust the faithful God who fights for you. Don't mix with the world. Cling to God because you can trust the faithful God who fights for you. This is obedience out of gratitude. Obedience out of trust. I love verse 10. One man of you puts flight to a thousand. It reminds me that when we're doing the work of God in God's methods and in His way with God's heart, there is no such thing as bad odds. There just aren't. Because God changes the odds. And so when we are right, rightly walking with God and seeking to do His work, the odds just don't matter. He's referring a couple things from Leviticus there. One, one from Leviticus, one from Deuteronomy. Um, in Leviticus 26, you shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And all of these things are reminding them of who God is. Of what He's done. 
I think reminding ourselves to trust God and of what He's done also helps us combat apathy. It's easy to sit and not try anything because we're afraid of failure. Joshua addresses that. One of you can be at a thousand. Get up and do God's work. Then Joshua comes around in the next few verses and he gives a command again which really matches the command we've already studied in verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. And this corresponds with clinging to God, that relationship with God. But he says, be very careful. And as he, as we go through this message, he's going to escalate his terms. He's going to escalate how he's talking because it's so important to him. I picture this, this man that's at the end of his life that loves these people so much that it's just getting all worked up. You've got to know this. And so he comes back to this and says, you'll love the Lord your God. And, and he's re, they would have immediately thought of the Shema of, of Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And they would have been reminded of one of their foundational commands. Love God. Love God. With your whole self. Because again, love and obedience are connected. And so these are commands to love God, cling to God, don't mix with the world, but all under the heading of follow my commands, follow my words. We cannot say that we love God and not keep His commandments. In fact, I would rather someone, if they're not going to walk with God, and if they're not going to obey His commands, I would rather them not even say they love God. Let's be honest. And not give a false impression of what it means to love God. That concept is throughout Scripture. Let me just read six different verses to you. From the Old Testament, from the New Testament. Exodus 26, "...but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love Me and keep My commandments." And look for the link between love and obedience. Deuteronomy 5.10, "...but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love Me and keep My commandments." Same as the Exodus passage. Deuteronomy 7.9 Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 11.1 You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. Love and obedience. Jesus' own words in John 14 If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Hard to get around that one. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 24, same passage. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the words that, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We cannot separate a love for God, relationship with Him from obedience. Love for God always results in obedience for God. If there's no obedience, if we're struggling with that, then the love for God is not there. Man, that's convicting to me. That's convicting on areas that I struggle with to think I'm actually struggling with, with loving God here. It's actually a black mark on my relationship and my walk with Him. So that's Joshua's second command but then he gives a second motivation, and this one is more of a warning. Be warned. Take seriously the consequences for failing to follow God. And in verse 12, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them. And so he uses the same word for cling that we're supposed to do to God and be one with God, be soldered to God. He goes back and uses that. If you do that with the, the nations the people that are around you that still remain so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain, do you see how he's escalating his warnings here? Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. They will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. And those are all wording of conquest and of enslavement. What happened to Israel we know later? They were defeated and they were brought into slavery. In Babylon, they were carted off because they did not remember God. 
until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And the final aspect of that warning is you're going to lose your land, your precious land, your inheritance, if you do not walk with God, if you stray. And Joshua is worried about his people. He sees it. And he's trying to motivate the leaders to lead the people away from that. We're going to see in the next chapter he was largely successful while he lived and with the next generation. But then we know in Judges 2 that the following generation walked away from God. We know that that's really the story of Judges is a series of the people walking away from God. God raising up a deliverer. They, they love God again and then they walk away from God. And then they get taken into captivity. It's this cycle that happens over and over because they're not heeding what Joshua is saying here. And again, I watch us do the same thing. We confess sin. We're repentant. But then we drop right back into it when times are good. And we incur God's judgment, a lack of relationship with Him, and then we repeat the cycle again. I read this, and this is a call to be on guard. To be vigilant. To take this seriously. Our sin has consequences. And it's the removal of God's work in our lives. Is that where we want to be? That's staggering. And Joshua is warning his leaders, be on guard, be vigilant. It's hard. I think of a time I was driving through Central California, and in Central California it can get fog that is just so bad. You, you, in this case, we had about 15, 20 feet of visibility. And we're crawling along on the 5 at maybe 5 miles an hour, and, and it's pretty scary to, to come up on a stopped big rig, even, even at slow speeds, because it just comes out of the fog at you. Finally, it was, it was, we were so tense, and after four or five hours of driving like this and not getting very far, we finally just pulled off when we found an exit in time to take it. And, but I can remember the, the tenseness and the vigilance that we had to have just to stay alive. And that's nothing compared to what Joshua is saying we need to be vigilant about, about sin and compromise. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Those six things are the heart of Joshua's message. The last few verses, the last three verses, he comes back to a challenge. He challenges his leaders to remember God's faithfulness, but also it's a challenge to, to choose which side of God's faithfulness they'll be on. Because God is faithful to bless and, and to, to be with His work. People that are walking with Him, not a, not a financial blessing, but a blessing of His work. But He's also faithful to remove His hand from those that aren't walking with Him. Let's read 14-16. through His conclusion, our ending as well. And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Three times he mentions the same thing so they'd get it. God is good. He has not failed. But, in verse 15, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which He commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given you. I like verse 14. God is faithful. He is good. But it's with verses 15 and 16. If we don't walk with Him, He is faithful, and He will judge. And so this is a, a call, a call to a choice. Will we follow God who is good all the time, even when we don't understand, even when we're hurting, even when there's pain? 
Will we follow Him? Or will we compromise, drift, mix with the world, and incur God's judgment? It's a choice that He's asking His leaders to make. A choice that rings for us today. Will we follow God's vision, do His work in His way by obeying Him, by by stripping away all aspects of worldliness, by not letting it even contaminate us? Or will we risk the anger of a holy, almighty God? And I shudder when I think about that. Because too many times I have chosen to sin and not even thought about a holy, righteous God who hates sin. Who I am to love and to cling to. God has done great things here at Village. God is doing great things. We're seeing people come to Christ. We're seeing the gospel presented. We're seeing people discipled. And so it's time to stay the course. To cling to God. To make sure we're not bringing in worldliness into our own lives. But to do God's work His way. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at the end of Joshua's life, we're seeing those same themes that we just have such a hard time holding to. Thank You for being faithful. Thank You for being faithful in Your goodness to us. Lord, I do thank You as well for being faithful in Your righteous holiness. Lord, I pray that every one of us would take seriously a call to not mix with the world. To strip away anything that Satan would be using to get us to start down a path of compromise. Lord, that we would be sold out to the King of Kings and faithful to the faithful one. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. May we respond with obedience and rising up to do your work. In Jesus' name.